unfolding story. For this hour, we gather to surrender to the mystery, to release ourselves from the needing to know, the yearning to have it all figured out already, and also the burden of believing we either have all the control or none. Here in our song and our silence, our stories and our sharing, we make space for a new breath, a new healing, a new possibility to take root. That is courage forged in the fire of our coming together and felt in the spirit that comes alive in this act of faith that we believe still a new world is possible, that we are creating it already here and now. I invite you now into our opening song as Maureen leads us.
of the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Laura Solomon, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I'm glad you're here with us this morning, whether you're here in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope you got a blue name tag so that we can welcome you and answer any questions you might have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you're looking for. We hope you join us after the platform service for coffee in the lobby and the social hall. And please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet found at the welcome table. You can drop that sheet in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to invite you to check in on social media and then remind you to please silence your electronic devices so you can be fully present with us here this morning. And now I'd like to invite Beth Baker to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. The Beth is part of the pastoral care team and the pastoral care team works with Amanda and I to nurture a caring community among West members and to coordinate meals, rides, visits, and other support for members with short-term needs. Anyone with a pastoral need is welcome and encouraged to, to approach any team member to request support. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Beth. As Beth lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful that this week has been difficult politically and has brought up feelings of fear and despair, anger, we remember the resilient people throughout history who have faced despair and have been part of a new way forward. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love.
I invite you now into a time of meditation. Begin to bring your awareness inside and slow down the rhythm of your breathing. When life is difficult, we can be overly critical and hard on ourselves. But compassion, not criticism, facilitates greater resiliency. With compassion, we can turn towards the difficult thoughts and emotions and then move ourselves forward with the next wise move. I invite you to repeat these phrases to yourself silently in whatever order or frequency feels comfortable to you. May I be kind to myself. May I find peace and healing. I am doing the best I can in this moment. May I accept and find ease with things just as they are. May I be kind to myself. May I find peace and healing. I am doing the best that I can in this moment. May I accept and find ease with things just as they are. I invite you now into the platform portion of our time together. We're going to reflect with the music that's shared with us by Maureen. Thank you. Drink up, baby. Stay up all night with the things you could do. You won't, but you might.
Maureen, thank you so much for that haunting piece and for beginning the conversation that we're having this morning with your music and for being with us. We're always glad to have you here. I think sometimes about um, <clears throat> what I wish I had learned in seminary. I think about it especially when we have clergy interns with us, like Lara. Um, what is it that I didn't get in my classwork that I wish I had, or that I wish I had known before starting this kind of weird gig? It is a weird gig, right? Grease traps. I wish I had known a lot more about grease traps. Those are the things in a commercial, commercial kitchen that divert uh, grease from going into the, I don't know, water, sewer. They require a lot of maintenance. That's what I've learned. Zoning regulations. I wish I had known more about zoning regulations. I do now. That's good. And addiction. Addiction, addiction. I, I didn't have a single class really in seminary that addressed addiction in any real way, not the pastoral care and counseling classes I took, not my clinical pastoral education, which was three months full time in a hospital. We talked about death and dying and about illness and about uh, divorce and about all the kinds of loss and challenge that people might experience in life. And we did not talk about addiction. After 11 years here, I have found that addiction is so frequently at least a part of the story. When someone comes to me with often other compounding or separate stories that I regularly ask in those pastoral conversations some version of how are you feeling about your use of alcohol or other substances as you cope with all this? How are you feeling? Addiction has been an element in my own extended family as we have grappled with and supported and sought to survive as a family through opioid addiction. And so I know the years of relief that things are finally better and then the sinking feeling when you discover they have not actually been better. And the resignation to waiting and wondering when you might get a call with bad news. In many ways in America, opioid addiction, the epidemic of opioid addiction has been the thing that has given the lie to the idea that addiction doesn't happen here whatever here is, a community that's nice or a community that's educated or a community that's white. Side note and different platform around the way that opioid addiction has been talked about and resourced and funded with harm reduction techniques nationally because it has been a largely white epidemic. That idea though that addiction doesn't happen here was always a myth long before the opioid epidemic. My own extended family struggles with addiction go back generations. And as I said, after 11 years here, I know that addiction happens everywhere. It may look 
differently, show up in different ways. Addiction does have many faces and can be involved in many different substances, right? Addiction to food and its complicated relationship with body image and eating disorders, addiction to gambling, to narcotics. Addiction is defined as the psychological and physical inability to stop consuming a chemical, drug, activity, or substance, even though it is causing psychological and physical harm. We're going to talk today mostly about alcohol because those are most of the stories that I received from West members and from friends and colleagues. <clears throat> and I'm so grateful to everybody who sent me those stories, who, who were willing to have their own experiences be part of our shared growth and understanding. And I, and I will say I believe so strongly that just as there is wisdom out of any person's experience with practically anything, there is wisdom out of stories of recovery and sobriety, out of stories of addiction and struggle that, that bring wisdom for all of us, whether or not that feels like it is a part of our own lives at all. The stories that I'll be sharing today are all different from each other, and you'll hear different pieces of them. And that difference feels like such a core part of the whole point. As I've listened to different people share their stories with me, one of my takeaways has been the idea, and it's an idea that will be familiar if you are familiar with 12-step terminology, that, that your sobriety is your sobriety, that your journey is your journey, both with substances and with sobriety, what that looks like for you. One story that was shared with me emphasized that there's no checklist of this is healthy drinking and this is unhealthy drinking. This person told me, I wasn't a daily drinker. I wasn't drunk every time I drank. Sometimes I would just have a few with my friends and go home. I didn't drink alone. I didn't hide my drinking. Part of the problem of getting comfortable with my drinking habits was that I had found a group of people who also did this and who supported this, including the bar owner who would get drunk with us. It was this close-knit community of people who had really unhealthy drinking habits, but it felt like family to me. They felt it was important as they were telling their story, even though parts of their story to some people would seem extreme. This person had blackout drunk incidences regularly, on a weekly basis, there were other parts of that checklist that they never would have checked. There's no checklist. Their story went on. I needed the freedom to be able to feel I could relate to people. Alcohol took away my anxieties. Unfortunately, it also took away a lot of my better judgment. You know that voice, they said to me, that tells you not to do something but to, because it's not a good idea and you'll regret it later? That voice was gone. I wanted to connect with people, and that's why I drank. I didn't know how to connect with people, but they seemed to like me when I was drunk. I so appreciated this person sharing the reasons behind their drinking, the reasons that they chose to repeat behavior that they knew at some level was harmful to them for a number of years before they were ready 
to become sober. I think a lot around alcohol about the culture that is around us, a culture that I participate in myself. I am not sober, I drink. And, and I have been especially aware of it in recent years. Some of you who are um, uh, mothers with small children may be aware of what's sometimes known as the mommy wine culture. Um, you can see it on t-shirts, you know, it's, it's like, my sippy cup is full of mommy juice, right? Um, happy hours that start at 3 p.m. and um, birthday parties that have a cooler for adults as well as a cooler of juice boxes for kids. It was a purse I saw recently with a spigot built into it. You could slide a bottle of wine into the purse and then there was a spigot so that you would always be prepared. There's something about that culture that has at its heart a desire for reclaiming your younger self, I think, a desire to be your own individual person, that even as a parent, as a mother, engaged with the care of our children at all times, that we want to keep the part of ourselves that's fun or enjoyable, the part of ourselves that doesn't have to pay attention to the toddlers wandering around us. And there is a part of that culture that can be damaging, particularly if you are trying not to drink or to drink less or more thoughtfully. I think about that culture at West as well and in congregations in general. Some congregations have policies that don't allow alcohol at congregational events, and West is not one of those. But others have policies, and West has done this in recent years, that, that if there is alcohol offered, there must be also equally appealing alternate drinks. So that means it's not five kinds of wine and a bottle of Coke, right? It's five kinds of wine and seltzer and a really nice punch or special juices, something that feels festive. I think about that even as people arrive at my own house when they come for dinner, do I start by saying, would you like a glass of wine? Or do I start by saying, oh, I have some options. Would you like to have seltzer or a glass of wine or juice or a beer? For me, it feels like a growing sensitivity and awareness, just like I am more aware of whether buildings are accessible, whether aisles are big enough for a wheelchair to maneuver an awareness of whether or not gatherings are welcoming to people who are in recovery or be thoughtful about their alcohol. A friend of mine who is in recovery was thinking about those equally attractive drinks um, and bemoaning the, the advent of hard seltzers. Have you seen the hard seltzers or tried them? <laughs> he said, seltzer was my one thing. <laughs> How they've taken seltzer too. Through all of this awareness and sensitivity is the idea of the ability for any one of us, whether we drink or do not drink, to be thoughtful about our choices. To ask ourselves, and it feels like one of the core questions, the question that moves beyond the checklist, are we in control or is the substance? 
I think about it in the way we think often about emotions here. Do we have the feeling or does the feeling have us, right? Are we able to feel angry or sad or frustrated or has the anger taken over? And if so, are we able to take a break so that we can have the feeling again instead of it holding us? Similarly, with substances and in this case with alcohol, one person put it this way, if alcohol is making your life worse, then you may want to think about changing how you drink. One of the stories that I received talked about the first step toward getting sober for this person's life. Here's what they told me. I had been to a party a few years before the day I began my journey to sobriety, and I met some people who were really cool, and I noticed that they didn't drink. They were connecting with people and having fun without drinking, and that stuck in my mind several years later. After an entire day, after being drunk the night before, um, an entire day necessitating recovery, I called a mutual friend of those people. As, as this person told me the story, I had this image of like this, like, this like gang of cool, sober people, right? I called a mutual friend of, the, of these people that I remembered from a party years before. I asked if they were in AA, and my friend who is not sober said, where did you hear that, instead of confirming or denying. I said, I don't remember, and I think I need help. My brain, this person shared, did not allow me to think ahead to getting sober or not drinking. I just knew I wanted to stop hurting the people I cared about. It was about being able to control my behavior and my relationships. This person's friend happened to be with the folks that, um, that they remembered from this party and said that they could meet right that afternoon at a diner down the street. And so the people came in and sat down. And as the story was told to me, I think they just listened. They just let me explain how much I was hurting. That was so much to me that I didn't have to get drunk with someone for them to want to hear me. I didn't have to use some other currency. I was a mess, but I didn't really think I was a mess because everyone else I knew drank like me. I got quiet because I had run out of things to say, and the woman I was speaking with said, so, do you think you're ready to stop? And I was like, what do you mean? My brain had not allowed me to think of that option. I knew I needed help. I couldn't think of needing to stop drinking. They invited me to a meeting and said I was welcome whether or not I was drinking, and I could just listen. The woman who spoke at that meeting was so much more successful than I was, but I felt the feelings she was feeling of being afraid and sort of desperate, and the only tool you have is alcohol. And hearing that somebody who had their life together more than I did was experiencing all the things I was experiencing and feeling all the things I was feeling and getting the results of the awful parts of it the way that I was, if this person who looked so together on paper was still in so much pain in all the same ways I was, that was an eye-opener for me. For this person going to that first meeting, not sure yet whether they were going to stop drinking or not, but simply to listen 
the experience of hearing another story, and in particular, hearing a story from someone who looked like they had it all together, and yet was able to express the pain they were feeling inside. That was their turning point on their story of sobriety and recovery. So for this person, a traditional 12-step program ended up being the answer that they needed. I heard from another person as well who had success in 12-step programs and who also acknowledged the challenge for them, particularly as an atheist within the program. I hear that again and again from folks at West who identify as agnostic or atheist and wonder whether they would be able to navigate a 12-step program, knowing that 12-step programs, and it depends on the meeting, the emphasis, but often include uh, a fair amount of religious language and certainly include a step around a higher power. This person talked about their experience in 12-step originally through Al-Anon a program for families of alcoholics or addicts. A friend told me about Al-Anon, and knowing I was an atheist warned me about the religiosity inherent in 12-step programs. But she also told me that I would likely find plenty of atheists in meetings, and I might want to try to connect with some of them. And fortunately, she told me there's a recommendation in 12-step that newcomers should attend six meetings before deciding if it's a fit. Otherwise, I would have walked out of my first meeting and never come back. At my second meeting, the speaker happened to be an atheist, and her talk focused on how she navigated the higher power part of the program. She helped me connect with other non-believers, and that made a huge difference. There is a place for non-believers in 12-step, but the concept of higher power is central, and it's hard to work the program if you can't navigate that concept somehow. For me, I thought a lot about what are things I believe in, and realized I believe that things happen in a predictable way and that there is some order in the universe. Yes, there's entropy, but mostly things happen as they should. I have a sense of wonder that there is order in that universe, and that order became my higher power. Twelve-step was working for me, and so I chose to adopt the twelve-step step precept, take what you like and leave the rest. That idea about take what you like and leave the rest was important in other stories that I heard as well. Several people spoke to me about 12-step having been there when they needed it and offering something that was deeply important. Some stayed with it for the rest of their lives. Some took what they needed and found their own journeys evolved. Some returned to it as required throughout their lives. The specificity of 12-step programs, that, that refers to programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics, um, uh, NA, Overeaters Anonymous, um, Al-Anon, Alateen, all of those are within that 12-step family of programs, are not the only way that people address their concerns around their use of substances. And so, although I didn't receive personal stories from these experiences, I do want to lift up the other recovery movements that are out there, many of which, perhaps all of which, are focused, like 12-step, on small groups and on accountability within those small groups. That includes smart recovery, which is abstinence-oriented, uses four steps, avoids labels like alcoholic or addict, and focuses on scientific concepts 
rather than a higher power at the core. That's SMART recovery, S-M-A-R-T. And then programs like moderation management and moderate drinking. Both of those are nonprofit programs that are not abstinence-focused programs, though some people within them may choose abstinence as their journey, as their recovery, but that also allow for moderation in drinking and, and um, thoughtfulness and control around drinking among their members. That idea of moderation or harm reduction, I think, is an important part of the conversation because I often find that people think either they're doing fine or they need to be in a 12-step program and can't drink at all. And there are a lot of us who find ourselves somewhere in the middle, perhaps, where they may want to have more thoughtfulness about how we consume substances. I know some people who don't keep a particular kind of alcohol at home because that particular kind is not a good fit for them, they have learned. Or who have rules about when they drink, at what hour, or which days. I am one of those people with boundaries around my alcohol consumption. All of these things are ways to be thoughtful about our engagement with substances. I noticed my Facebook feed starting right at the end of December, or maybe it was sort of 1 a.m. after New Year's Eve, began showing ads for different ways to engage in dry January. I actually, I, you know, boy, capitalism. <laughs> Apparently, one of the ways is to buy very expensive um, uh, mocktails that were like a, a common Facebook ad running through my Facebook feed January uh, 1. Turns out you actually can try dry January without purchasing expensive mocktails. I just wanted to let you know in case you were not aware of that. Some people might try dry January or not drink for a while and start drinking again on February 1st. And they have still learned something about how they engage with substances and how they want to continue to do so. Some people might try dry January and notice that their lives felt different when they weren't drinking and keep on not drinking or might choose to drink less. There was a great article that actually just came out Friday in the New York Times, an opinion piece by a woman talking about her choice to stop drinking how she did it, why she did it, and particularly coming from a space of having been sort of what might be labeled uh, like a moderate drinker, not a heavy drinker, but a moderate drinker. She included a, a link to a test, <clears throat> one of those checklists I said it's not really all about. And I took the, the test, and I, and I actually think it's helpful, again, not necessarily so much because of the score, but for how each question gives you an opportunity to think about how you're answering them. Which questions do you check off saying, oh, I feel comfortable with my answer to this? And which do you check off and think, hmm, I might want to think more about how I'm answering this question and how it makes me feel. Your story is your story. Your story with substances, your story of sobriety, your story of recovery. Those lessons of recovery out of 12-step programs, but also out of any recovery experience, seem to me to be so deeply not at their heart 
about the substances themselves, but instead about the emotional sobriety. As one person told me, that emotional sobriety is where the real growth is. More than once I know I have been working with someone on a, on a team or a committee. This has happened for, for years, decades. And I have noticed how self-aware they are, how they don't seem to get upset about little things. I just have been reflecting on how much I enjoy working with them. And then it turns out they have been in recovery. They have done the work and it has shown up not just in their engagement with substances in their lives, but in how they engage with life overall, their self-awareness, their groundedness. Any work of recovery is hard, and it changes, I believe, how we function well beyond changing our relationship with whatever substance brought us into that recovery journey to begin. My colleague, Ken Belden, um, an author, Unitarian Universalist minister, and the creator of the Addiction and Recovery Ministry at UU Wellsprings up in Pennsylvania, talks sometimes about how although he celebrates not drinking each year since his last drink, <clears throat> he celebrates even more his ability to access mindfulness, to live in the present, to experience his emotions fully. Those for him are the greater gifts of his work. The other thing that came out time and time again in the stories that I received about people's recovery journeys, and the thing that perhaps holds the greatest importance for every single one of us, is the way that community shaped their ability to be in recovery. One person said to me about their experience with 12-step, it was the fact that everyone there welcomed you with open arms. One of the really important things that someone said to me was take what you leave, need and leave what you don't. That phrase we heard earlier. A, what, what AA does is give you a group of people who are also struggling with a lot of the same things, being human in a difficult world. And people talk about that, how to live life on life's terms. Going through the motions of some of the religious pieces for me was helpful but it was more an acknowledging that things are difficult and that people get through it together and that they do it without further destroying their lives with alcohol. You can destroy your life sober, don't get me wrong. And people share about that too. No one judges it. Everyone connects with it in the rooms of AA. I know that if I'm struggling, not only do I not have to pick up a drink, I know that there are rooms full of people everywhere I go, knowing that I have that support network built in. Another one of the phrases out of the 12-step program, and probably my favorite, is not to judge your insides by someone else's outsides. It means that when we look at somebody who seems as though their life is all together, we don't know the story they're carrying within them. Again, I think that's a lesson that runs true no matter where you are around a journey of recovery. It's a lesson that is true for us as humans. Don't judge your own insides by someone else's outsides. Time and again, people said to me that what felt important was to have a place where they could be fully themselves, messed up and struggling, 
not trying to put on a mask. That is what I want for every one of us about whatever it is we are struggling with in our lives. A place where we can be fully ourselves, where we can share our stories with vulnerability and truth. My final message this morning is that if you have a struggle you are experiencing, whether or not it is around addiction, or even a worry that you might be experiencing a struggle, or a wish to be more thoughtful about how you engage with substances, to reach out. Here at WES, we host several 12-step meetings. You can let me know if you want to have more information about that, and I can give you the schedule. As one person said to me, going to a new AA meeting is really scary. If you know where the bathrooms are and where to pack, a barrier is reduced. In addition to Lara and me and the Pastoral Care Associates team, two of our contributors today, Sue Weiss and Audrey Grip, who have different experiences with different 12-step programs, wanted West folks to know that they could be a resource to you. As one of them said, I need people who are struggling to know that they're not alone in this community. Whatever struggle you might be experiencing, 11 years of pastoring in, I can tell you, you are not alone. Someone else, sitting here right now or coming through our doors later, has been in that same spot or will be soon. None of us are alone. And we can be each other's community of care. Thank you for that beautiful talk, Amanda. Um, I've been playing music here for about four years, three or four times a year, and I love being here. I've never really spoken, but um, Amanda invited me to say a few words because I've been in recovery for 12 years, so I haven't had a drink or a drug in 12 years, and I'm actively engaged in, um, in AA, and I've been to meetings in this room before. And um, I just wanted to share, uh, I wrote, the next song, I've never done an original song here, but this next song I wrote about my recovery and the way that um, just abstractly how the steps have worked in my life. So I wanted to share it with you today. Um, I also wanted to share that the song I did in for the reflection was by Elliot Smith. And um, it's written from the perspective of alcohol, actually. And um, it's a beautiful um, song and it really gives a lot of insight into the alcoholic condition. And what's the craziest about it is that Elliot Smith died of this disease, but yet he had so much insight into it. Um, it's just so complicated. You know, you can know so much about it and still, you know, fall from it. So anyway, this is um, my intention. In the morning, I pray that I can make use of the day. That I won't cause you any pain, my love, my intention. Mistakes will show. 
distance shoots just like a ray of sunshine. Up in my ivory tower, let me come down from its power. Thank you.